Greetings and salutations, everyone. This is Volts for July 18th, 2022. Volts Podcast, David Wallace-Wells on the ravages of air pollution. I'm your host, David Roberts. Back in 2020, I wrote an article about some eye-popping new research on air pollution, which found that the damage it is doing to human health is roughly twice as bad as previously thought, and moreover, that the economic benefits of pollution reduction vastly outweigh the costs of transitioning to clean energy. It seemed to me at the time that the findings should have gotten more attention in the press, and I wasn't the only person who thought so. Journalist David Wallace-Wells, who made a splash a few years ago with his terrifying book on climate change, The Uninhabitable Earth, also dove into new air pollution research and produced a magisterial overview for the London Review of Books last year. Recently, he revisited the subject for his New York Times newsletter, asking why social mobilization against climate change, which promises millions of deaths in decades, is so much greater than mobilization against air pollution, which kills 10 million people a year today. It's a challenging question, and I'm not certain I have a great answer, so I wanted to talk to David about it. What the new research says about the mind-boggling scope and scale of air pollution's damage to human welfare, how we ought to think about it relative to climate change, and what scares him most about the process of normalization that allows us to live with 10 million deaths a year. David Wallace-Wells, welcome to Volts. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. It's great to talk. Really good to be here. So you made a big splash several years ago with your article on climate change in the subsequent book, but in the last year or so, year or two, you have been writing more and more about just good old-fashioned air pollution. And it seems like um, you're kind of getting sucked in, <laughs> like it keeps pulling you in. So tell me kind of the story of how you first interacted with this story and why you keep coming back to it. Well, on some level, it's the same answer I give when people ask me how I got worried about climate change, which is just to say I was seeing scientific research that was really quite alarming. And the more that I looked at it, the bigger the story seemed and the more it seemed to demand of me as someone who wrote on anything close to these these issues. The slightly more personal version of it is like, I wrote my book, I spent a lot of time talking about it, talking about climate change, and I found myself again and again in describing the scale of the impact, citing a small handful of data points or projections that I found really useful to communicate what I saw as the really, you know, how, how scary it all was. And one of those was this data point that at two degrees of warming, we should expect 153 million additional deaths from air pollution produced from the burning of fossil fuels. And I would always caveat that and say, no, that's not exactly climate change, right. but it's caused by the same things that cause climate change. <laughs> and the more I said it and the more that I thought about it, I was like, wait, hang on a second. If the most dramatic data point that I can come up with to explain how scary the world that we're going to be living in is, is not actually about temperature rise, maybe I should spend some time thinking about what that means and how it might change my own perspective on warming and what that's likely to be like. 
And so I wrote a piece. It actually was a very slow burn piece. And it was actually, even though it totally contradicts what I just said, mm-hmm. uh, was a story that was proposed to me by the LRB. Um, I wrote a piece for the London Review of Books that was published last fall, but which they had actually invited me to write before the pandemic began. And over the course of those couple of years, I was just collecting more and more material. And as I sort of had done with climate, it just felt like the more I looked, the more I saw, the darker the picture got. Um, now, there are some really important distinctions, and the, it's not an easy parallel. We could talk about some of the contrasts. But in general, the, the sort of emotional experience of it for me was the same, which is just to say, I had my eyes opened out of some amount of horror or fear. <laughs> and the deeper that I looked into the subject, the bleaker it seemed to get. Right. Well, I want to talk about some of those parallels in a minute, but first let's just dwell on the research for a minute because, you know, I feel like there's sort of a popular conception of air pollution in the U.S. Insofar as people think about it anymore, it's like the river used to burn, you know, then we got the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and more or less tackled that problem. And now it's just a problem for overseas. I think that's kind of the folk story of air pollution, but the recent research you know, it's 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 almost um, qualitative difference. <laughs> you know, I I wrote about this for Vox a few a few years ago. Just looking at this, you know, this new research that's basically like, eh, it turns out the effects are about oh double what we <laughs> what we thought they were. I'm yeah. like, damn! It seemed like it should have been bigger news then. You know, I kind of write a I wrote a little table pounding story about it. So just talk about kind of what scientists have concluded in these last few years about air pollution and its effects. Well, there's sort of two stories running in parallel, or maybe parallel isn't even the right word. They're kind of running in opposite directions at once. And one is the story that you've summarized as the folk history, which is to say, in the richer parts of the world, air pollution is getting better. That is true. Right. You know, if people remember 20, 30, 50, 70 years ago, um, the air in the US and in Europe was a lot worse than it is now. Mm -hmm. And it is better in part because of policy, but in part because of activism and, you know, for a variety of reasons, but it is better. And the health impacts are significantly smaller today in the U.S. than they used to be. But at the same time, we're learning that, like, the health impacts generally are way worse than we thought that they were. So I touch on this in the story I wrote for The Times recently about it, but I think this is one of the complications in processing this new data is that we see things getting better even as the science is giving us a darker and darker picture. What that science says is every time we lower the threshold that we want to consider safe for air pollution, we discover that, in fact, that new level of air pollution that we thought was safe was not safe. Yeah, and that's and that story is unbroken. The air, the ratchet never goes in the other direction, as far as I can tell. Totally, and it's it's very much the parallel there is there with lead, where yeah, yeah. you know, just every few years there's a new standard, and then researchers are like, actually, let's make it even lower. So, you know, the, the WHO just released um, last fall a new global standard in which they said that anything higher than five micrograms per cubic meter of particulate matter is dangerous to your health. The previous level had been 10. In the U.S., the official standard of safety is 12 still to this day. That's been battled over and battled over. What was Obama trying to make it like? What were we trying to? I actually don't know that those details. Maybe you'd know them better than I do. Yeah, I want to say 10 or 8. I mean, it would make sense that they were just trying to pull it into line with the WHO standard, which had been 10. So that probably makes sense. And have failed repeatedly. And I don't want to overstate what this means for people in the U.S. who are breathing unhealthy air, which is to say, 
if the WHO standard is five and we're at, as a country, nine or whatever, mm-hmm. or you're in a particular locality where it's seven or 11, it's not like you're going to be dealing with the same level of health impacts as people living in, in Delhi, for instance, are. There's a spectrum and the more of it there is, the worse off you are. But one of the things that's been most interesting to me at a sort of conceptual level in thinking about all of this is also that while the effects on an individual life can be relatively small or even invisible, when you unroll the impact or the, the you know the menace over the over a large population, the totals really add up. So a big study that came out of Harvard about a year and a half ago, and the headline there was that 8.7 million people around the world died in, I think it was 2019 just due to the air pollution from the burning of fossil fuels. So 8.7 million a year globally, just from the burning of fossil fuels, putting aside all other causes of air pollution. They found that just within the US, the total was 350,000 a year, which is roughly as many Americans as died in the first year of COVID officially. Mm -hmm. So we're even here, breathing our relatively clean air and telling ourselves that things are getting better on the pollution front, even here, 350,000 lives or so are being cut short every year due to these impacts. There's a a parallel, I think, to the climate discussion in that, you know, you can say climate causes X deaths, but deaths never present themselves as from climate, right? They're just, what climate is doing is raising the odds of other bad things happening. And in a sense, it seems like um, kind of conceptually air pollution is the same way. Like air pollution is not on your death certificate, right? Air pollution just raises the odds of this immense range of other bad things happening. Yeah, it basically makes everything about the human body and the human brain worse. (laughs) And that means that across a large population, there's a much greater mortality risk um, than there would have been without it. And that is, you know, it's important to keep that in mind. It's not like we're talking about someone dropping a bomb on a city when we say 10 million people die a year globally from air pollution. The causes are more diffuse. The impacts are more diffuse. And the way that we experience those impacts are also more diffuse in the sense that, yeah, like the person you know, you know, who might have died, given the world as it is, but wouldn't have died in a world without air pollution, you probably attribute their death to cancer or respiratory disease or heart disease. Um, But those rates are just much, much higher in the presence of this, you know, environmental contamination. Yeah. And people think about, I think, air pollution as exacerbating you know, like asthma and stuff like that, stuff with your lungs, maybe even cancer. But, you know, you you cite research that ties air pollution to a wild array of outcomes, like health, uh, psychological, social, crime, like name it. Just like tell us about some of the sort of crazier things you found in, in those studies. I'll say the crazier stuff in a minute, but I think the most important thing is just like, it's just everything. Um, so <laughs> right. it makes everything worse. So that's the things that may seem familiar, it's just important to like sort of reiterate respiratory disease, pulmonary disease, cancer. Then there's all stuff about cognitive performance. And, you know, you can look at like surgeons perform worse when there's more air pollution in the air. Yeah. Umpires in baseball games make worse calls right. um, when there's more air pollution in the air. Crime goes up, um, domestic violence goes up. And there are these pretty striking findings about mental health and depression, suicide, self-harm. It really goes like all down the list of absolutely everything that you could sort of define as a standard of human flourishing is made worse at the population level when there's more of this stuff floating around in the air. And the way that that rolls out or folds out or plays out in a place like the U.S. 
is one kind of scale of effect. But, you know, in places where there's just a mass amount of pollution, it's really, really, really dramatic. So in the US, you know, the estimate is that as a country, even though we're losing 350,000 people a year, on the whole, that only adds up to a loss of about 0.2 years of life expectancy, which is, you know, that's a few months on average for every person, Mm -hmm. but it's not, it doesn't change the shape of your life in a truly profound way. In Delhi, it is 10 years, which means that this is a city of 20 million people. Mm -hmm. They are on average losing 10 years of life. Yeah, that's wild. And losing in some sense before they're even born, like that's some of the most kind of depressing research you cite. Yeah. The, the, I mean, the research, it's been like a sort of, sort of a second act of research for me has been the effect on yeah, fetal health and maternal health, newborn health, um, which is growing a little bit, but it just also happens to be something I've been focusing on more lately. And I was writing this piece for the Times, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the Supreme Court's decisions on Dobbs and West Virginia versus EPA. And it felt like, well, God, if, it's like if only we could show there was some connection between air pollution and uh, the well-being of newborns. So, yeah, globally, 500,000 um, newborns die every year in ways that are attributable to air pollution. So in South Asia alone, there are 350,000 stillbirths and miscarriages every year attributable to air pollution. And, you know, the effects are not just, you know, whether a fetus lives or dies or survives, the pregnancy emerges um, intact. It's also it affects premature birth, low birth weight, um, which are strongly correlated with a lot of measures of, of human well-being later in life. So, you know, again, it's it's really no matter where you look, no matter what standard you're trying to apply or what question you're trying to ask about whether people are flourishing in this world, air pollution is almost certain to give a darker picture than we'd be able to give or have or live through um, without it. Let's talk a little bit about um, kind of what to do about it, where it comes from. You know, people think uh, mostly about burning fossil fuels, which I think is probably the bulk of the problem. But you point out that there are other sources as well, big, you know, large remaining sources, even if you tackle fossil fuels. Yeah, well, I I would say actually there has been a bit of a shift towards an understanding of the predominance of fossil fuels as the cause over the last few years. I think, Hmm. you know, rewind five or 10 years and people probably would have guessed that a lot of it had to do with um, bad indoor cooking in the developing world and agricultural burning and those play a role too. Um, But yeah, at least according to... um, to this, this Harvard study, it's, you know, we're talking about the large bulk of, of air pollution deaths um, being attributable to fossil fuels. And, and um, that's in particular, you know, coal plants and cars. Um, but the, you know, the natural world produces a fair amount of particulate matter too. We have dust pollution, you know, and so in the piece, I mentioned one study that I actually think this may be slightly pessimistic, but they said that if we entirely eliminated all anthropogenic activity, half of the world would still be breathing unsafe pollution levels. No kidding, because of dust or fire or what? Yeah, a combination of dust and fire. And then there's just some other stuff that like vegetation just gives off um, some particular matter, which I didn't even know about before, um, before looking at this work. So, you know, there's some stuff that we can do to somewhat take control of that. You know, dust is a problem that can be to some degree controlled through agricultural practices and, you know, ecosystem restoration and that kind of thing. But probably we're going to be living with some amount of this gunk floating around in our air, um, you know, forever. And um, that's in certain ways dispiriting and despairing, but to bring it back to something I said a few minutes ago, it really is different if you're like at 10 micrograms per cubic meter versus 
40. Right. And we should be able to bring a lot of those really dangerous levels of pollution down if we take control of the things that we are doing as humans, which is to say burning stuff. Um, in the LRB piece, I had a, like a line that was everything we burn, we breathe. And I think that's a, like a pretty good rule for thinking about how to combat air pollution. Anytime you're lighting a match to something, it'd be better if we didn't do that. <laughs> Light fewer matches. What do you say? I mean, this is, I remember this kind of an old school conservative thing kind of before climate change took over everything when air pollution used to be kind of a bigger thing. Uh, I remember kind of the conservative take on it being based on this Kuznets curve, based on this idea that the more prosperous a society gets, the less it burns things, basically. And so the solution to this is just to make those developing nations as rich as possible, as fast as possible, rather than focusing on the air pollution itself. What do you what do you make of that argument? I think it's a relatively accurate description of the path of development that most countries in the world have taken to this point. But I find it pretty disingenuous as a guide or rule to the way that we should be thinking about the present tense or the future in the sense that, you know, especially acknowledging how large a role fossil fuel burning is playing in these issues. If we believe as, you know, as the IEA and many other analysts tell us that solar power is the cheapest electricity in history and 90% of the world lives in places where renewables are cheaper than dirty energy, there is no longer this trade-off where living greener and breathing cleaner air is going to come at the cost of economic growth. It's now the case that all else being equal, and you know, of course there are complications, but all else being equal, if we're drawing development trajectories for anybody anywhere in the world at the moment, we would be rapidly downgrading, downsizing our dependence on fossil fuel in those places and rapidly embracing um, renewable power, which is going to produce many, many fewer of these impacts. So I think going forward and thinking about policy and culture and economic activity going forward, I think that that old rule is a little bit um, foolish and essentially counsels complacency when in fact the landscape as we understand it should push us in the other direction to move much more quickly to get off these sources. It seems like even if you just take the same cost-benefit analysis, the same equation, and just plug the new information we have about pollution into it, just out of that, you would get counsel for much more aggressive pollution reduction, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, this is something that you've written about, too, when you, you wrote about the testimony that Drew Shindell gave, and I can't remember if it was Congress or the Senate um, during the pandemic, but where he said that the cost of the green transition in the U.S., would be entirely paid for and then some just through the public health benefits of the cleaner air that that transition would bring about. So we don't have to worry. You don't even have to put into the equation all the jobs we're going to get. You don't even have to put into the equation the climate benefits we're going to get. You just have to think about the cleaner air and that pay, that um, immediately pays for the whole project. Yes, it would pay for everything. And also, you know, now that we know more about the damage pollution, it's the same story with lead, right? Like, like as you said before, like ever since we stopped using it or even before we stopped using it, we've just been learning, oh, it's worse and worse and worse and worse and worse than we thought. And we've like traced crime waves, tons and tons of stuff to lead, basically lead in the water. It's amazing how much you can attribute to it. And now the same thing's happening with particulates and air pollution, which means when you look back, A, that the pollution we have had in this country, you know, decades ago actually did more damage than we knew. And B, something like the Clean Air Act, you know, like 
they keep doing these cost benefit analyses on it. And like every time you get new information about pollution, the overwhelming benefit of the Clean Air Act just grows and grows and grows to the point now that it's sort of like if it were popularly appreciated, what a wildly successful piece of legislation that was, there would be so much more outrage about what the Supreme Court is doing, right? Like in retrospect, we know it was even more successful than anyone dared hoped, even until just very recently. Yeah, I, I want to go back to something you said just a minute ago, because I think it's really, really important, which is we can talk about the public health impacts. We have talked about a lot of them. But I think it's also important to understand just how much these forces shape our social and political and cultural lives mm-hmm. through their public health impacts. So when we think about lead, there's a quite plausible account that lead pollution, which was concentrated in poor, browner, blacker communities in the U.S. Yep, always. Drove the U.S. crime wave of the 60s and 70s, or at least powered it, gave it some extra push. As a result, we can say that that crime wave was more racialized because of the effects, because of the racialized effects of lead. And the result of that was white flight out of American cities, the growth of quasi-reactionary, quote-unquote, centrist suburban politics in this country. Right, Reaganism in the 80s. I mean, you could spin it out. The whole story of America over the last 50 years, <laughs> right? and especially the American politics of the last decade or so, you can actually quite neatly draw that line from lead pollution, which is to say to an environmental contaminant, which we knew mm-hmm. was bad for you, a century and a half ago. (laughs) And we chose not to worry too much about it because we didn't really appreciate the scale and there were other reasons not to take action. And so we we let the paint companies put lead in their paint and we let the gasoline companies put lead in their fuel. And that whole time we knew, and the effect wasn't just corrosive to the public health, particularly of black and brown Americans, poor black and brown Americans in the middle of the century, But it is one of the driving forces in our entire national narrative over the last five decades. And when you think about air pollution in the same context, again, the impacts are not as dramatic in the U.S. as they are elsewhere. But the whole picture that we have of early stage industrial development in the late 20th, early 21st century in the global south, so much of that is tied up in the toxicity of the pollutants that are produced there. And if we could wind back the clock and run those development patterns differently, the whole picture of the future as it was perceived in places like North India would be really, really different. And our perspective on those places from, you know, looking at it from the global North would be really different too. We wouldn't regard life in the slums of the global South as nearly as dark and grim as they are, right. beyond which those, as at least, you know, implementing what we know now about the, the economic benefits of clean energy, they may well be moving up the economic ladder much faster than they are today if they hadn't gone down that path. So all of these stories from the incredibly local individual li- lives lost up through the geopolitical and the sort of mythic level that we operate on often in our national politics all of those are, are affected by these forces. And that's not to say that like, if you walk down the street in Delhi, you're going to keel over and die. Although I have walked down the street in Delhi and it can be hard to breathe. But it's just to say that when we 
put even a small scale effect on a population of 20 million, or in the case of India as a whole, 100, you know, 1.4 billion people, those effects really, really add up. And we are just beginning, I think, to appreciate how much those stories of environmental contamination are shaping all of these bigger narratives that we've treated for so long as, you know, if not quite neatly great men theories of history, then, you know, <laughs> stories about national character or whatever. Right, right. And you look back and it also makes every bit of sort of corporate lobbying, like in the lead story, you know, every bit of corporate lobbying, every backroom deal that let it go on a little bit longer, those now knowing what we know about the sort of first and second and third order effects that spun out from that, those just look like monstrous, <laughs> monstrous crimes, like the amount of human suffering attributable to those decisions looks enormous now with the full scope of history to look at it. And it sort of makes you think now, like, here we are arguing again in our politics right now over air pollution. Like, do we think we're going to find out in the future? You know, like, again, like we should be learning prospectively now from the past that these are very big decisions and the benefits of, you know, reducing them are so much larger once you take in the full picture than anyone imagined, like it ought to be transforming politics. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I have, I come at this from a pretty unusual position. I, you know, I write about climate, I write about the environment, but I'm such a urban person who does not think about like the rights of nature and the, you know, the bounty of the planet that needs to be protected. Those are not my <laughs> emotional impulses. My emotional impulses are to think about, you know, human suffering. But the more that we learn about not just air pollution, but the effects of pollution of all kinds. Um, yeah, I think you're exactly right. The more that we bring ourselves back into line with what was that sort of old timey seeming environmentalist impulse, which is just to say, we should be protecting the natural world at all costs. Like I wouldn't quite go as far as to say at all costs, but we know so little now about what all these microplastics are going to do to us. You know. Yes, I know. But we've had enough experience to guess. It's not going to be good. Which direction the results <laughs> are going to go? Right. Like that's the thing. Like we at some point, it seems like you need to start learning from these things, looking forward, right, and not making the same damn mistakes over and over again. Yeah, and I, I wonder. I mean, I, I don't know exactly how you'd put those odds, but um, it does feel like we're more in a position of making the same mistakes all over again than, than we are. In really, <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yes, we are in an age of making mistakes all over, <laughs> all over again. I think so. That's, that is our era. Well, let's get into maybe what a, it might be kind of a slightly awkward or controversial subject. I guess depending on how we want to put it, but I'll just put it this way: knowing what we now know the current global effects of air pollution are as bad as anything climate models project in terms of deaths and illnesses, even decades in the future from climate change. Do you think that's fair? Well, I would say that that's my understanding of the science. There are some climate models that are already tallying deaths in the millions, but I tend to think of them as sort of outlier assessments. Now, they may prove to be more prescient in the same way that alarmist assessments of air pollution have proven to be prescient too. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's, as a, at a baseline, very safe to say that there are more people dying, as we understand it today, from air pollution in 2022 and 2023 and 2024. There are going to be more people dying from air pollution um, than are dying from the whole range of, of climate impacts. And that to get to a point where climate death ever overtakes these numbers that we have today, which is to say 
10 million people a year, which is 100 million a decade. To get to that point with climate would require perhaps both a real unraveling of the global climate system that would require some of the higher end possibilities um, to come true, and also probably a much more robust accounting measure beyond that which we have devised to this point to tabulate those impacts. Um, you know, most of the sort of alarming comprehensive assessments of climate mortality suggest that in this climate scenarios that we can sort of expect in the next 50 to 75 years, we will never reach this, this level of death on an annual basis from climate. Right. And that's just like striking. <laughs> so I really want to put a, I really want to put an exclamation point on it. Like we are, the world is mobilizing against climate change, obviously not to the degree anybody wants or that is sufficient, but there's immense social upheaval and mobilization and political mobilization against a possible future danger <laughs> that is not as deadly as ones we are living through right now, which are not causing anything like the same mobilization. How do we how do we explain that? What story do we tell ourselves about that? And what story should climate people be telling themselves about it? Like, do you think it makes sense to just on a utilitarian level, turn your activist attention and your advocacy attention away from climate to air pollution? There are a lot of different questions embedded in there. And actually, I'd be, I'd be really curious to know how you think about it. I would say a few things. To begin with, you know, I've, I've now written two big pieces on air pollution, and I actually underwent something of a perspective shift in the interim, which is to say when I wrote the first piece, which was just last fall, I put forward the line that activism against air pollution might be at the very least useful to include in a more significant way in our climate advocacy. These things are really correlated. If we solve one, we solve the other. And talking about air pollution really makes the cost of an action really, really, really clear in a way that talking about climate change independent of air pollution um, doesn't make quite so clear. And much more localizable, right? Much more sort of like traceable to particular communities, right? And immediate. So if you cut emissions today, the effect on global temperatures may not be so visible, right, but the effect right, on right, air pollution right. from your local coal plant will be immediately visible. Mm. You know, it's also like there's a visual that's really powerful, you know, literally like the ugly gunk in the sky and in the waters, like all that stuff is, you know, it, it lends itself to advocacy and has in the past pushed people in countries like ours to take action in a way that climate has proven, you know, a little, a little harder to gain that sort of traction. Right. And is mobilizing people in China and India now, I think, in a way that maybe climate isn't. Actually, it's an interesting comparison to make. The most dramatic reductions in air pollution over the last decade or two have come in China. Mm -hmm. um, India has taken some steps and there is some advocacy growing, but they haven't meaningfully reduced their pollution levels. In China, they really have. They cut their pollution by, I think, something like 40% in seven years. And it was from a very high level. I think one estimate I cited in this piece was that 30 million Chinese people died between 2000 and 2016. 30 million people in a single country. That was the coal binge, right? I mean, yeah. that coal binge had so many effects on so many things, but like among them, the mortality of the Chinese. And they took large scale policy. They made large scale policy, made a large scale response and to deal with that. And like they moved the coal plants um, to begin with. They've also started moving off of coal. They're actually, 
they keep building the plants, but they're running them at like much lower levels of capacity, as mm-hmm. I'm sure all your listeners know. Um, <laughs> but the question of what produced that, I think, is a complicated one and not, I don't personally feel like I know the answer clearly because everything we know about Chinese environmental policy comes to us through so many layers of, I don't know exactly what to call it. It's, it's just hard to, to know the real story there. Right, right. I, my understanding is that there, ha- there has been some amount of grassroots activism and people were upset about the air pollution in the middle of the last decade. But I also think that there's a, a pretty strong role being played here from the top-down powers as well, mm-hmm. who are looking at the mortality data and are just like, well, why would we want these people to die if we can not have them die? Well, it seems like the whole point was we're going to use coal to grow the economy, bring a bunch of people out of poverty, and then we're going to pivot and start addressing the problems of coal, right? Like, I mean, I mean, it, you hate to say that they accepted all those deaths from air pollution, you know, on purpose, but they kind of did in exchange for the an extraordinary number of people brought out of poverty during that same period, right? I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, I, it, again, it's it's another thing I don't I don't feel like. I'm not sure that I can attribute that logic to, you know, she um, or his advisors. Right. That is the operational revealed logic of their path for sure. Right. So for all those reasons, I thought like, yes, making a bigger deal out of pollution. And it pulls way better yeah. also. Like literally every American you ask is like, yeah, we should be taking measures to yeah. clean up our air. It wasn't like water. everybody switched to climate because climate <laughs> pulled so much better than air pollution. Right. The opposite. Um and relatedly, it is much less tied up in culture war bullshit yes. than climate is. And theoretically, if the climate movement made air pollution a much bigger deal, maybe that would change. Uh, maybe it would become polarized in the same way. But at the moment, it's in a very happy place where basically everybody's excited to sign up for most measures that promise to reduce pollution. Although there's some issues about, you know, it's still the poorest, brownest, and blackest communities that are hit hardest. And it's not always the case that other people want to help them. But at the national level, like people want to deal with pollution. They want their air to be cleaner. So for all those reasons, I thought this is a strategic win. We've probably left something on the table by focusing on mm-hmm. climate as opposed mm-hmm. to pollution. And, you know, we don't have to talk about the future. We can focus on the present. We can see this, see it all very clearly. It motivates people. We have a track record of success here. But I've started to think much more that the story of air pollution is less about, yeah, mobilization and more about normalization. We have been living with these impacts in certain parts of the world, um, really quite dramatic levels for a very long time. And while there are some success stories, the U.S. you know, Clean Air Act, the, the equivalent in Europe, and now what's happened in China, it's also the case, as you point out, that there just isn't a global movement around this. And in fact, we've come to regard, I think in places like the U.S. and Europe, at least, we've come to regard the pollution levels that people are dealing with in South Asia and parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, um, and to some degree, East Asia and China as just like normal. And that's the flip side of the, you know, the Kuznets curve story that you told. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That sort of falls out of that, right? You're, if you believe that story, then you look at that pollution and say, well, eh, that's the phase they're in. and It'll solve itself. And what are you going to do? Totally. That's really what worries me about climate these days, too. You know, I used to think that if people saw the story clearly, they would take action. And that, you know, I, even, even at the time, I sort of knew that that was to some degree naive. We were such a sweet summer children back then a few years ago. And now I think, oh, like most of the stuff that people like you and I have been warning about for a while is probably going to come true. There is going to be a lot more suffering and a lot more disruption. It may not be quite as bad as 
maybe me in particular has worn, but it'll still be like quite large scale negative impact on, you know, all forms of global flourishing to have climate change of two, two and a half degrees, maybe even three degrees of warming. But the response there, I come to think more and more is going to be dominated not by, you know, mitigation to be sure, not by, you know, adaptation and resilience, but just by normalization. We're just going to find ways to treat... Not by a global uprising of spontaneous <laughs> grassroots energy. Yeah, or even technocratic, like, oh, we're going to build a seawall here and we're going to regrow the mangroves here and we're going to... You know, even that kind of thing is, I think, a smaller form, is a smaller part of our sort of adaptation toolkit than normalization, whereby we were like, people living in California you know, they talk about the fires, they talk about the smoke, but here we are, we've like, I don't know exactly, depending on how you want to count, like we've like quintupled the amount of acreage that is routinely burned in California from wildfire. And like, everybody's just like, yeah, it's a little worse. (laughs) And that coping mechanism, I think is really quite deep and is the way that we adjust. If we had been talking about this five years ago, it'd be one thing, but now we've seen this illustrated in so many forms now, basically people's ability to take what once would have seemed crazy or out of bounds or too far or too bad on board, as long as it's incremental. And it turns out we can normalize things really, really quickly. Like we got used to, I mean, COVID's still going on, right? (laughs) Hundreds of thousands of people are still dying, but we got used to that so fast, you know, it, it, as I look back now, the climate idea that climate campaigners had, especially in like the early 2000s or whatever, like once it gets really bad, people will mobilize just seems so wildly naive. Now, it takes so much to get people to mobilize and anything that's incremental, even something as fast as like democracy falling apart around us. Look at what we've taken on board as normal in the last five years yeah. in terms of democracy and, and and the rule of law. And that's, you know, in, in a domestic context, which is also something that would have surprised me. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to say Americans don't care about dictators in, in the developing world. It's another thing to come to terms with what we've seen here. I, I totally <laughs> agree. I mean, I, I think the pandemic, we could have a whole second conversation about the lessons of the pandemic on these on these questions. You know, I think that normalization has been a huge and underappreciated part of the story. I'm, I'm working on a piece now about um, the sort of, you know, the, the quote unquote end game that we have apparently, according to the people who really know this stuff, somewhat settled into here, which is to say 100,000 to 250,000 deaths annually from this disease. And I'm now working at the New York Times. When we hit 100,000 deaths um, in the U.S. from COVID, they put a huge banner headline on the front page, which used the phrase, an incalculable loss. Well, how do you calculate 10 times that loss? <laughs> yeah. Or having that loss every year, yep. forever after going forward. It so quickly becomes abstract. But there's another lesson for on the climate, and, and I have a dog in this fight, I, <laughs> just to like declare it up front, that I think is really interesting from the pandemic, which is to say the moment of most intense interest and greatest capacity for large scale behavioral and political change in response to this threat was at the very beginning when people (laughs) were most scared. (laughs) Now, that's, you know, saying it that way suggests a slightly more, a slightly neater case study version of what we've gone through than I really want to suggest. But 
it is, I think, important to keep in mind that, like, actually, the capacity for change was quite dramatic at the beginning of the pandemic. Yes. And the corollary of what you're saying, which is that it's going to get more and more difficult to address as it gets worse and worse, right? Absolutely. Not easier to address, not not this spontaneous global mobilization. It's going to be harder and harder. I mean, this is what we know about chaos and just general disorder. Like, it does not make people more far-seeing and more and more concerned about the next generation and more open to cooperation with other people, right? All the things you need in place for a global solution to this get more difficult the more climate does that threat multiplication thing it does. Well, you know, I, I think there are those who might say it's a little more complicated than that. I mean, Rebecca Solnit has written a lot about the way in which disorder and disarray can call forward our, our better impulses. I think, I think the truth is that we can't count on any single narrative pattern emerging and holding in any one direction through these, the series of climate disruptions that we're likely to see over the next few decades. And I do think that there is probably some amount of response that will be called forth, more dramatic response. I mean, we've seen it already. The world is moving faster than it was five years ago, even though climate um, impacts are getting worse. But I also don't think that we can just say that, well, that's that's going to take care of things. Um, it's, it's much, you know, there are a lot of ugly impulses out there. We need to do what we can to make sure that the responses are targeted and guided towards pro-social productive goals rather than zero-sum competitive, um, you know, scrambling over what we perceive to be limited resources. I think, you know, I think it's just, it's just a big mess. Um, that's not to say that no progress is possible in that mess, but it's the, the landscape itself is a mess. Once you abandon the idea that accumulated empirical information is going to spark social change, <laughs> then you're sort of at sea, right? What will, what does like we, the one thing your air pollution story illustrates really well, you know, which is like something that's been demonstrated to us over and over and over again these past few years, which is that humans are terrible at assessing risk. We don't treat all deaths the same. We don't treat all risks the same. Our individual and collective response to risk is not totally disconnected from the scale of the risk, but, you know, 90% disconnected from the true nature and scale of the risk. So it seems like we need something like a study of what does break through, what does cause social mobilization, what does make a threat, you know, in addition to the empirical information that demonstrates it's a threat, what makes it socially sticky and catchy? You know, like, do we know anything about that? <laughs> well, you might know better than I do, but when I look at the last few years and think about this question on a few different fronts, you know, um, not just climate. The thing that strikes me is not the question, does anything work? It's, is there anything that can work in an ongoing way sufficient to really disrupt the established you know, structures of, of power and authority? So when I think about climate, I think, oh, wait, we did have an incredible global mobilization around climate change. We had millions of people all around the world marching in the street, mostly young people, we had more aggressive climate activism in the form of, to some degree, Sunrise, certainly XR. And the sum total of those movements, I do believe, really did change the discourse around climate change you know, among the world's most powerful people, both in the private and public sectors. And so you, you see a lot of this lip service now being paid 
by presidents and prime ministers, but also by CEOs and, you know, our sainted billionaire class. Um, <laughs> Nobody is a climate denier anymore. And they all say, they even say we need to get to net zero by 2050, basically, if you ask them. And many of them make a big deal out of that. Um, but we actually haven't gotten on that track at all. So we've just sort of, to the extent that we forced anything, we forced a rhetorical shift in people who are interested in making progress, but not interested in making progress quickly enough. And I, I think that, you know, maybe it's the pandemic, maybe it's other political forces, but I look at the climate movement as somewhat exhausted um, now compared to where it was a few years ago. Yes, yes, yes. And then I think about, okay, so thinking about in the domestic context, the response to Dobbs and the reversal of Roe, and I, I feel this and I, I see it among many, you know, like-minded liberal Americans, there's just this sort of exhausted, almost acquiescence when you compare the response to that decision to the Women's March, which came out of the election of Donald Trump, you know, you can argue about what impact the Women's March had and whether it was sustainable, et cetera. But you saw over the course of whatever the, that is, like six weeks between, eight weeks between, maybe it's 10 weeks, but between the, the election and the Women's March, the building of a from scratch protest infrastructure, which at the very least signaled to other Americans, we as a mass are outraged. Yeah, it just didn't seem like there was the institutional, you know, like somebody needs to pick up that ball and run with it. Like on the right, if there's a, a spark of, of social uprising, you know, like there's billionaires ready to heap money on it and bust them around and put them on TV all day, every day. But it just didn't seem like there's any infrastructure to pick that energy up and carry with it. So it just seemed like it kind of dispersed. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's definitely part of it. And that we would be better off with a, you know, some more effective, large-scale organizing infrastructure on the left. I also, although I've read some things recently about the way in which, you know, like the Bloomberg gun philanthropy has sort of like hoovered up what was essentially grassroots movement into a corporate <laughs> environment in, in ways that may not be all that helpful. But I also just think about, you know, I sort of go back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago about the response to the pandemic and the way in which an initial burst of outrage and commitment can just dissipate on its own. Yes. And I worry that like we sort of mobilized on the center left and left against Trump because we understood that to be such a profound threat to a lot of things that we assumed or wanted to assume about the nature of the American democratic experiment and the public at large. I just worry we sort of like spent that energy for a generation and that we may now be depleted. Well, this is, it's kind of the nature. I mean, it, I return again and again, there's a, this is a little bit of a cliche, but I return again and again to sort of psychology of abusive relationships. And that's part of how they work is you can only deal with so many crises at once. Like, you know, like there's the financialization of the economy is a crisis. Like, inequality is a crisis. Climate is a crisis. Now here you are telling me air pollution is also a crisis, like democracy falling apart is a crisis. Any of those I could justify spending my entire, you know, energy and passion towards. But Are you familiar with the term polycrisis <laughs> or permacrisis? Yes. And I can't, like, people just can't process it or focus in, at a certain point. Your, your phrase is exactly right. Exhausted acquiescence. It's just... That seems to be sort of the energy these days, which is disastrous, but I don't know what to what to do or about it. 
Well, you know, on the on the Dobbs and Roe point, I mean, I do really believe that there is some real failing here on the part of Democratic leadership. Yes, better leadership would help. <laughs> it just seems like, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. It's it's a tough hand to play, but people are really furious. They're really outraged, and playing the long game just isn't the right message to give them. Right, and it's not even clear they're doing that. It's not clear that. You know, yeah. if they had a long-term plan, that'd be one thing. They just don't seem to have a plan at all other than sort of this instinctive move to the center attempt, you know, the sort of twitch at this point is like that establishment dims have. It's like the only reaction they have left. I don't remember who in the White House said it, but just a couple of the last couple of days, somebody said basically like, we're not here to like appease the activist wing of the Democratic yes, Party. Yes, the, the activist, which is like 80, 90% of the friggin' <laughs> party. Absolutely. Like it's the whole party. Like, what are you talking about? It's nuts. But I also think that, you know, I also think that there's a failure on the part of the public here, which is to say like the protests have been pretty small and uninspiring. And every woman I know, you know... <laughs> And a lot of men are like really, really upset about it, but it's not actually translating into the same level of public. You know, we're not projecting that outrage in a visible way that makes the decision seem untenable. We're just sort of like crying privately. And that's, <laughs> it's just not, I mean, you know, we're coming off a pandemic. We've been, as you say, there's one crisis after another. There are like I, I, on a personal level, I, I understand someone being like, I just, I'm not about to like organize a march on this uh, myself to some degree. But when you add up that exhaustion, you're just like, well, then who's leading the way? Yes. My dark story is the exhausted acquiescence after the theft of the 2000 presidential election basically was the starting gun for a century thus far of exhausted acquiescence to incremental, you know, ratcheting up of you know, these authoritarian impulses and the reactionary backlash, just that was where to draw the line, right? And ever since then, it's just been retreat, pulling the lines back, 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 back. And like, look where we are now. There was a freaking coup and we can barely act collectively like it was a bad thing, much less, you know, hold people accountable or whatever. Yeah, I mean, the, the perspective on the left on the on the hearings is almost like, well, this is good TV. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Which I don't mean to. It is good TV. They've been much better at it than previous people doing previous, you know, versions of the same thing. Well, I feel like we should have learned by now that nobody involved cares about being outed or shamed or scolded <laughs> or exposed. Like none of that matters. Consequences matter. And that's it. Like, you know, and there just haven't been any. Yeah, I would say I think that the hearings have damaged Trump's chances of the nomination. Yes, they have helped DeSantis quite a bit, I think. But it, they haven't hurt Trumpism. <laughs> okay, okay, we've wandered so far afield, David. <laughs> I'm going to bring it back. I'm going to bring it back for the final question then, which is which is related to this, which is do you think that I mean, this air pollution story that you're telling, that you're sort of over there pounding on your table telling, which trying to break through is very striking and I think new to people. And so I wonder, and as you say, addressing it and addressing climate change are basically the same damn thing. You're, uh, you're trying to stop uh, burning fossil fuels, right? So do you think that the sort of global climate community, A, ought to or B, can use this new air pollution story as an accelerant in the effort 
on climate? Or do you think that normalization is such that it's just like the shock pads on the dead body? Like you just can't, can't get any more juice out of anything. Like, do you think it's going to help or work? I think it's already helping. I think that global political leaders have a growing understanding that burning fossil fuels has really terrible health effects that are concentrated in their own countries, which is to say that they can control those effects in the way that they can't control the global climate change dynamics. Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, I think that the climate movement could bring out this imperative a little more clearly, and I think to some more effect. But I also wonder really how much more the curve can be bent. You know, the way I see the changing climate dynamics is that we may be moving relatively, already relatively close to a kind of best case decarbonization pathway. And that's not to say that I think disastrous climate change will be averted. It's just to say that when we start imagining even faster paths of decarbonization that have already been promised, I start to worry and wonder whether those are even technologically feasible. Mm-hmm. Like getting the whole world to you know net zero at 2050 or 2060 is a really gargantuan task. I think it's beyond our capacity. And so one version of the question is like, if we're already committed to those, those incredibly fast pathways, what difference does it make to be yelling about air pollution a bit more? Another a- version of the answer, though, is to say, well, the problem is not that we've, you know, is not the commitments we've made. It's, it's how fast we're moving to fulfill them. Yeah. And I do think that on that point, you know, in some of the ways that we've been talking about, the localness of the effect, the localness of the control, and the sort of immediacy that most people feel about, like, choking on bad air as opposed to breathing clean air, I do think that there, there can be some difference made there. Um, I do think that especially people lobbying to close down local coal plants, for instance, can make a difference through appeals from air pollution. Any context in which cost-benefit analysis is involved, this swamps it, right? Like once you bring this new air pollution data in, you're like, you win all those arguments, right? It's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the U.S. government officially sets the value of human life at something like $7 million, which means that like if, if we have 350,000 lives lost every year, you know, that's, that's a lot of money. I can't do that math on the plate. <laughs> I was going to see if you could do it, but it's a couple trillion dollars a year um, that should be, you know, in theory could be spent on, um, should be spent to clean this up. But I would say in the big picture, it's also just to like, what's one little last point on that decarbonization stuff is like, there's a huge difference that's going to be made through EV adoption mm-hmm. and the, you know, electric bikes in other parts of the world too. And um, we're going to pick up a lot of those gains that way, which is a story that's unfolding you know, it could be accelerated by policy, but it also seems to be, to me at least, to be unfolding um, almost independent of policy pressure, at least in the U.S. right now. And I think that's also useful to keep in mind that whether or not the climate movement can weaponize air pollution to accelerate the green transition, whether or not they can do that, the air will be cleaner 30, 50 years from now than it is now. The benefits will happen. Some benefits, like we can get there faster, we can get farther along, but to the extent that it can feel oppressive to contemplate the climate future and think that all we're doing is choosing between degrees of disaster. The air pollution story tells us a slightly different and more optimistic story, which is to say it is probably now worse than it will ever be in the future. And in that sense, you know, not to sound too much of a cliche, but, you know, there's something that we can look forward to there. <laughs> well, that's a delightfully optimistic place to, uh, to wrap it up. 
Thanks for coming on. And thanks for, you know, thanks for your work bringing attention to this. I feel like it should be talked about a lot more than it is. Thanks for having me to talk about it. It's great to, great to schmooze. <laughs> All right. See you, David. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.